Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Dr Deborah Morovitz is a paediatrician and neonatologist in Melbourne. Graduating from Monash University Medical School in 2004, Deborah specialised in paediatric training in both Sydney and Melbourne. As a mother of twins, Deborah is uniquely qualified to discuss a common dilemma in IVF, single versus double embryo transfer. Double embryo transfer marginally increases the chance of pregnancy per IVF transfer attempt, but carries a significantly increased risk of multiple pregnancy. Today, we welcome Deb Morovitz to Knocked Up. Deb, you're a paediatrician and you're here to talk to us about multiple births and twins. Will we start with you telling us about how you got into paediatrics? I think I always thought that I wanted to have a career working with children. Um, I originally wanted to be a teacher, like I think most eight-year-olds and my mum's a teacher. Um, And then when I started medical school, I definitely wanted to do paediatrics, but I wanted to be a paediatric oncologist. And having worked in that area as a trainee, I realised as much as I loved it, I probably couldn't do it both logistically and emotionally. It was hard not to take work home, but I did fall in love with paediatrics. And so my Training took me from Melbourne to Sydney for a year where I had a fantastic year and made lots of close friends who I now stay in contact with as colleagues, Um, but then was able to move back to Melbourne to complete my training. And I am a bit of a jack of all trades, so I do some neonates at a small community hospital here in Melbourne. Um, My main practice is um, primarily developmental and behavioural paediatrics out in the western suburbs and I work for a community health centre. And I also, in my copious free time, do some casual shifts at the Monash Emergency Department. Um, And I've just started a new developmental clinic out at Eastern Health. And today, Deb, you're speaking to us with your professional and your personal hats on because you are a mum of twins. I am indeed. I've got two beautiful, identical boys who are now, they're turning four next week. Should I say their names? Do I need to create pseudonyms? <laughs> no, let, let, let's keep them private. It's always an issue I find as well because, you know, I love to talk about my kids. I love to brag about my kids. But I also know that as a doctor and especially in the current kind of world where we do have internet presence, we do have social media presence, you know, I one of the things that I mean, I would love to share with the world about my children, but I, I find that it's a conflict because I don't have their consent in the kind of adult way of things and so I try actually to keep while I'm not kind of secret about the fact that I have children I always keep them a little bit private just so that when they do you know kind of live their lives they can do so without their privacy being breached from the get-go by their kind of overzealous mum. 
<laughs> well, we had an agreement with um, my husband that we would have a no social media policy. So we have WhatsApp groups with chosen family and friends. Um, but no, we, we try and keep them off Facebook other than when they were first when they first came home from hospital because um, particularly Marcus, who's from overseas, um, wanted to share some of those photos with family and friends and it was a bit easier that way. So, Raylia, Deb has identical twins and twins can be identical or fraternal. I think if we maybe start with how that happens and then if we talk about why, if, how multiple births are more frequent with fertility treatment. Sure. So, look, I thought Deb would be the perfect person to talk to about this. I will just premise what I'm going to say with I have a lot of patients who think about the idea, especially in my IVF practice, of whether to put back one embryo or two. And I always say that, you know, it's world's best practice to transfer one embryo at a time in IVF. And that is because of a whole multitude of things which we'll talk about. But twins do happen in IVF and they do happen in nature. And there's two ways that twins can happen. So in nature, you can have twins by way of an egg that you release. And most women will release one egg every month, splitting after fertilization. And that can make identical twins or identical triplets can also happen in nature. But the statistical probability of having identical twins in nature is one in 400 pregnancies. So you can see that that's, you know, kind of not a very um, common event. So, Deb, you're pretty special (laughs) and your babies are very special. In terms of having fraternal twins in nature, there are some, this is the kind of twins that can run in families. So some people will tell you, oh, twins run in my family. And it can be true. So you can have a genetic predisposition to ovulating more than one egg. And actually, there's a whole group of people in South America, there's this village which has this crazy number of twins where lots of people genetically are quite closely related to each other and they have a predisposition to ovulating more than one egg. That can also happen as women get older, as we start to get into our 40s and our fertility window does start to close, our body kind of has a bit of a last hurrah and our follicle stimulating hormone levels go up every cycle. And so you are more likely to recruit more than one egg if you're over 40 and that's why twins in nature have a slightly increased chance of happening over 40. So if you look at all types of twin pregnancies that happen in nature, the two egg twins and the one egg twins, most of them are in fact two egg twins and there's about a one in 80 chance of having a twin pregnancy out of every pregnancy conceived overall. Now if you look at IVF, things are a bit different because especially in the early days of IVF where we're making embryos in the laboratory by fertilising eggs and sperm together, we've really come a long way since 42 years ago when the first IVF baby was born in the, in the world. It's only really been for about the last 30 years that IVF has been accessible as a kind of more mainstream fertility treatment And in the early days of IVF, we weren't that good at culturing embryos outside the body. 
So because the success rates of IVF per embryo, because of the laboratory factors and also the factors that couples bring to the table with the intrinsic reasons for infertility that made them require IVF in the first place, the chance per embryo was not that good. And we, before we were confident in culturing embryos out to day five to the blastocyst stage in the laboratory, we used to put these embryos that in nature would have still been in the fallopian tube on day two to three into the cavity of the uterus and the environment wasn't optimal. So it's normally in nature a blastocyst that reaches the uterus and the uterine environment is really perfect for a blastocyst but not for a day to two, two to three embryo. So clinics used to compensate for poor pregnancy rates per embryo by putting back multiple embryos. But the problem was that when they did that, the multiple birth rate was significantly increased in IVF. And on top of that, our identical twinning rate in IVF is much higher than in nature. So remember I talked about having a 1 in 400 chance of an identical twin pregnancy in nature? Well, it's actually more like a 1% to 3% in IVF where we culture embryos to the blastocyst stage. So I've had probably, I think, four sets of identical twins so far this year in my practice and that happens um, in IVF that's probably a bit more than average I would say (laughs) Um, but it happens you know so more so in IVF than outside of IVF so that's kind of a, a did I answer your question that's kind of a background background on twins or multiple pregnancies so if you're having if you're pregnant with twins there's going to be I feel like there's going to be other health issues. For people who are choosing to have the two embryos put back in, what are some of the risks that they need to be aware of? Well, why don't we talk from the mother and from the baby? So, and then, um, you know, kind of, and Deb, feel free if you want to give us your perspective on what it was like to carry twins in pregnancy and what some of the challenges were of being pregnant with twins. I would say from the mother's perspective, from the obst- putting on my obstetrician hat, um, I always call myself a retired obstetrician, tongue-in-cheek, because I don't deliver the babies anymore. I've got far too many babies in my practice to do that. But I still remember a lot about obstetrics from all my studies. And what we really worry about from the obstetrician's point of view with twin pregnancies is the risks to the mother and then the risks to the baby. So the risks to the mother are things like, and I think this just is recognising that pregnancy is a big biological ask of a woman, that the physiological burden of a pregnancy on your body is actually quite a big deal. So things like getting gestational diabetes when you're pregnant, things like getting hypertension and preeclampsia when you're pregnant are much more common with twin pregnancies. Things like having musculoskeletal concerns, pelvic instability, prolapse, these kind of stretch marks and all of those things as well, these are more common with twin pregnancy. But far and above and beyond all of those concerns are the risk of premature birth. And that is probably our greatest concern in terms of embarking on a twin pregnancy on purpose. I'll throw it to Deb. What's your perspective on on this? I feel like I want to start off with having twins has been one of the most magical experiences that I could have ever had and I don't think I would have ever done it on purpose. 
I've always said in my paediatric practice, wow, twins looks amazing, but I'm not sure I would ever wish it on anyone. And I think being a twin mum is a pretty amazing experience. You have, it's, it's a club that you can't actually join. You have to be born into it, so to speak. When you walk down the street with twins in a pram, strangers smile at you, they stop you, they ask you questions, they tell you that they're a twin or that their parent was a twin or that they had twins themselves. You have a connection with other twin parents that other people or multiple parents that other people can't have because no one else could possibly understand it unless you've had it. Some people have an easier pregnancy. Some people have more difficult pregnancies. I, from a physical point of view, I had all day morning sickness till about 20 weeks. So that was certainly much harder. I know that's not exclusive to singleton pregnancies, but it certainly is more common to have hyperemesis or quite significant morning sickness with twin pregnancies with the higher rates of, um, of hormones floating around. I didn't have pelvic instability, but I had quite a lot of musculoskeletal pain. I'm not a big person. And so carrying two babies, I was about the size of full term at 32 weeks. So I had almost 3.4 kilos worth of baby and two plus uh, two placentas and oh, well, one placenta and one big placenta and two sacks. Um, so looking at the pictures in retrospect, I was pretty good size for 32 weeks. I think there are some people who can pretty blissfully go through a twin pregnancy without worrying about all the complications and being able to say, well, look, I'll worry about it if it happens. And because I also wear a professional hat, that was unfortunately absolutely impossible. So I found out that I was pregnant with twins at six weeks because I'd had a miscarriage previously and I had pain on one side. And so we were concerned that I had an ectopic pregnancy. So I went in for my six-week, make sure it's in the uterus scan, And the night before, I actually had a dream that we were having twins and I was joking around with my husband the next morning on the scan because I hadn't seen him yet this morning because he'd gone to work. And I said, so, you know, this is my dream. And we all laughed. And then the sonographer got in there and she found a heartbeat and said, look, it's inside, inside the uterus. Oh, that's wonderful. And then she said, hang on a minute. And I said, are you serious? And my husband said, what, what? Because he's not medical. And, um... I literally started shaking and I didn't stop shaking for four, about four hours afterwards. That's the amount of adrenaline that was going through because I, I knew what we were in for. And when you have a pregnancy with a shared uterus, when you have a shared uterus, a shared placenta, um, MCDA twins, you are even more deemed high risk. And so you have to have fortnightly scans. And as a mum who knows too much, and I've done a year in the NICU as a doctor, and we actually... You know, I know people who've either lost twins or lost one twin. That was incredibly stressful for me. And I used to just hold my breath until I saw two heartbeats and then close my eyes because I could see that the growth was always okay, but it wasn't amazing. And so even though people said, oh, wow, it's amazing. You get to see your babies every two weeks. I think unless you really sit there and go, wow, and I'm going to check for problems, it's very hard to find that an enjoyable process. So both physically and emotionally, it's a very difficult experience if you're not able to blissfully, naively sail through and go, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, I was very lucky. I never developed preeclampsia or hypertension. I never developed gestational diabetes. 
and my body held up reasonably well other than I had two episodes of pneumonia during the winter and I think if you spend a lot of time coughing with a very large watermelon on your bladder that's uh, probably not so great for your pelvic floor. <laughs> and these were your first children, is that right? These were my first children, yes. Yeah. And you speak about being the size of full term at 32 weeks. When did you give birth and how big were your boys? So that was when I gave birth at 32 weeks. So we looked very closely for twin-to-twin transfusion in the early days, which is one of the, the most significant complications for babies that share a placenta. What, what is that? So twin-to-twin, oh, I shall, I'm happy to hand over to Rayleigh, but from a layperson's point of view, twin-to-twin transfusion is when the placenta is shared, the babies have connecting blood vessels. And in theory, you should share the blood supply evenly. And in MCDA twins, sometimes you can end up with uneven shared blood supply where one twin donates their blood to the other twin. And no other situation is particularly good for the baby. So there are long-term medical repercussions and developmental repercussions for babies who either have too much blood or not enough blood. And that can manifest in a number of different ways, including poor growth, things like fluid collecting in places that they shouldn't, so ascites and fluid around the heart, complications in terms of long-term neurodevelopmental development, higher risk of things like cerebral palsy. So it's something they watch very closely for. And in the last probably decade, I think, and maybe even five years um, now, obstetricians who work in high-risk pregnancy have been trained in lasering those shared blood vessels so that you almost like disconnect the placenta so that they stop unevenly sharing the blood to try and keep the babies in utero for as long as as safely possible for both the mum and the baby. So Deb, was 32 weeks your goal? Was that a planned 32-week delivery or was the plan to try and go further? My plan was always to get as far as possible into 36 weeks and I must confess, I had a big celebration at thirty at 28 weeks when we got to 28 weeks and my sister-in-law was pregnant at the time as well. So it was an interesting way to see how differently we viewed those milestones. And we thought we were home free. So we got past the 26, 28-week scan and nothing had gone wrong. Of course, they continued to monitor you fortnightly, but I relaxed and uh, felt like we were really going to get to that 36-week uh, point. And then at 31 and a bit weeks, we had a scan where the growth looked like it had slowed significantly and one of the twins was showing signs of compensation in one of the blood vessels, so in the um, main artery to the brain in one of my twins. And so my obstetrician said at 32 weeks, the risks of being in are starting to outweigh the risks of being born. And so we'd like to schedule you for an emergency delivery as soon as you hit 32 weeks. So I did get a five-day head start. Yeah. But it certainly came as quite a, a shock. We weren't expecting that. We thought we'd come through the hard bit. And so you would have had some steroid injections to try and mature the baby's lungs as much as possible before delivery? Absolutely. And there's a funny story that goes with that. First of all, they are without a doubt the most painful injections I have ever had in my life. Um, But my beautiful husband had planned us an inverted commas delayed baby moon um, because I was on maternity leave and he'd actually just resigned from his job. And so we had 
what we thought was about six weeks or four weeks at least ahead of us. And so we'd booked the Werribee Mansion for a couple of nights, which seemed that was about as far as I was prepared to be from a tertiary centre. And then the obstetrician on Friday said, well, we need you to come and have some steroids. So we commuted from Werribee out to Monash during our baby moon to go and have our steroid injections and some monitoring. So it wasn't much of a baby. <laughs> quite, quite, a, quite a journey. It's about an hour and a half with no traffic each way. At least you still got to go. Yes, absolutely. And it made us sit down and choose some baby names because we had two girls' names we liked but no boys' names. So... So you kept it secret? You didn't find out? No. Look, I had an inkling because at one point the obstetrician said, now look away or it'll be a giveaway. Ah, I see. But we we didn't officially know. That's interesting. A lot of people don't like to know. I think it's a bit magical not to know, but I've always been a bit of a control freak and I actually scan myself with both of my babies to have a look (laughs) in in the antenatal (laughs) clinic. Someone that I know who has very strong opinions on everything said to me, I can't believe you're not going to find out. And I said, what do you mean? I want it to be a surprise. And he said, it's a surprise no matter when you find out. And he has a point. It's true. That's true. I've said that before to patients. (laughs) However, it probably saved me a lot of money because it does restrict the amount of pre-shopping you can do because there's an awful lot of pink frilly things. That's probably a good thing I didn't buy. Absolutely. So, Deb, tell us a bit about your delivery. Was it by a caesarean at that time? Yes. So um, I had toyed with the idea if both babies had been a similar size and twin one was head down, whether I wanted to have a go at a vaginal birth. And being medical, I did as much research as I could. Maybe that's not the right thing to say. I'm sure lots of people do lots of research, whether they're medical or not. But I I feel like I had access to probably more evidence-based journals with my medical background on. And so I did lots of thinking and lots of research. And ultimately, the choice was taken away because my first baby was breached. And because of the emergency nature, the safest way was to have an emergency caesarean yeah, because I would have think it was because of the, the fact that they were worried about one baby decompensating a little bit and not being able to withstand the, withstand the stress of labour. I think it's it's one of those things, labour, which is different from the woman's perspective to the baby's perspective, and it, there's a lot of that in obstetrics. You know, we've kind of got two patients at the same time as an obstetrician. So from the woman's perspective, a vaginal birth can represent an easier pathway to healing and an easier bounce back. But from the baby's perspective, labour is actually a stress and a trauma where every time the uterus contracts, the oxygen to the baby stops and it's like the baby has to hold their breath because the blood flow to the placenta stops. And a normal baby that's well-grown and has a competent placenta has the reserve, the physical reserve, to withstand that stress without being compromised but the minute you have a baby that you becomes distressed or that you're worried about becoming distressed, to put them through that can sometimes cause them severe fetal stress. That's kind of the obstetrician's point of view on, you know, Caesar at that point in time. Uh, the other thing that was explained to me by my obstetrician was that, particularly in terms of a twin pregnancy, the risks to the mother if you... Um, have a go at a vaginal birth and um, you're unsuccessful that then your risk of post-operative complications are not insignificantly higher and also then there's the risk of needing 
a cesarean after the birth of your first child. So my sense was that they'd be happy for me to have a go. I think the outcomes for the babies, when everything is well, they're close to term and the size differential is minimal and first baby is head down, especially with an epidural on board so that they can yoink the second baby down if it's in the wrong position. Uh, pretty equivalent um, in terms of outcomes for the babies, but the outcomes for the mothers can sometimes be a little bit different. I know that people feel very fiercely, or some people anyway, feel very fiercely about at least having a child a natural vaginal birth. And this being my first pregnancy and potentially being my only pregnancy, I didn't know we didn't have the easiest time falling pregnant in the first place, so I didn't know what that would look like in the future. I wasn't quite ready to say, oh, no, that's fine, I'll just have a Caesar. But it's 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 weird to be given like if you have a choice, it would I think it's a really hard choice to make unless you have really strong views one way or the other. Um, but that was how it was presented to me: is that the evidence is growing that the outcomes for the babies when everything's well is not dissimilar, but that the risks to the mother are something to consider. Absolutely, and in terms of your babies being born at thirty-two weeks. What was your experience with the amount of help and assistance your babies needed from the doctors in neonatal intensive care? The first thing that I did was our booking in appointment was booked for the day after the boys were scheduled to be born. So we were supposed to have a tour of the nursery and maybe a tour of the NICU and of the hospital and the operating theatres or the birthing suite. So on the weekend, I took my husband into the NICU and said, you're probably going to, if they end up needing NICU, you'll be in here on your own because I'll be down in recovery. Um, And this is what they thought one of the boys was going to be 1.3 kilos. So I said, this is what a 1.3 kilo baby looks like because it's pretty small. And this is what a baby looks like on CPAP. And this is what a baby looks like on a ventilator. Because for a non-medical person or someone who's never actually seen babies in a NICU, it can be quite confronting, especially when it's your babies. We had hoped that with steroids on board, that the babies would require minimal care and really would just need more lower level care in the special care nursery with isolate care and nasogastric feeding. I had booked myself into a hospital with a tertiary NICU and an intensive care because I'm the sort of pessimist that thought, well, I'm sure that the worst case will happen and therefore I want us all in the same hospital because in my other in my career I spent a lot of time separating babies from mums and so I wanted to try and minimise the risk of that happening. Unfortunately, the boys were born at a time where the NICUs were pretty full and there was talk about whether we needed to delay the delivery because there weren't ventilator beds. And my obstetrician said to me, Deb, they really need to come out now. And I think we just have to risk it. When they came out, they came out in pretty good condition. So they didn't need any resuscitation at birth, but they did need CPAP. And so unfortunately they had to be transferred to another hospital. So I was at Monash and they were an hour away over in the Royal Women's getting fabulous care, but a little bit too far away from me who just had a Caesar. One of the things that I remember very clearly was trying to sit in a wheelchair to go up to the boys when they were getting stabilised in the NICU and really wanting to be there and physically not feeling well enough to be able to be there. I was in quite a lot of pain, obviously, you know, I'd had a Caesar a few hours before. They needed a bit more care than some babies do. They had low blood pressure, of which they couldn't explain initially. 
and so they needed some intravenous arterial lines and drips and things like that and they actually still have scars on their hands and feet from some of those drips and the consultant who was on in the NICU was a fellow when I was a registrar and he came in and he said, Deb, your babies are a bit sicker than we were expecting. Have you had any illnesses in the last few weeks? And I just went, oh, God, no, I don't think so. I don't know. I had no idea what was going on. Um, and in the end, it turns out they actually had the late version of twin to twin transfusion called TAPS, which is, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember what the T stands for, um, twin anemia polycythemia sequence I believe so my twin one was the donor twin and twin two was the recipient twin so it was great I had two identical babies that we could tell the difference because one was a very red baby and one was a very pale baby but that explains why they were a bit sicker than were expected and they stabilized they needed CPAP for three days and they were off their blood pressure support after the first 24 hours so that was really terrific. So they really did need to come out stacked Yes, they did. And I think it must be very hard to look after medical people because uh, I wrote an email to my obstetrician after that Friday where I got a big shock and I said, I think you've been keeping things from me. Why would everything be fine? And then suddenly everything is not. But he was right. And so I then wrote an email back later and I said, thank you for doing what I asked you to do, which was make the hard decisions and not worry about how I felt about them. So how do they feel about those little scars on their hands and feet? They have not noticed them yet. They haven't noticed them? They're not, they're not like badger, badges of pride from having been NICU babies? No. I mean, I don't think they would see them. I see them, but they don't see them. It's funny the things yeah. you notice in your children. Absolutely. So, Deb, in terms of my patients that I treat with IVF, I would usually try and most of the time encourage single embryo transfer but there are some times where when things haven't been working where it's an uphill battle maybe they're over 40 and you know we're worried about time uh, in someone who doesn't have an absolute contraindication or reasons that to avoid a twin pregnancy that I would do a double embryo transfer from time to time um, what would you say to parents who are early in their IVF journey and requesting double embryo transfer against advice? I've had a long think about this question. I actually asked a few, there's a, there's a beautiful group that I'm part of, which is um, medical mums of multiples. So it's even a more special group because these are all women who know far too much who've gone through the, uh, the multiple birth experience. And some of them have gone through double embryo transfers and successfully conceived twins. I think it is an absolutely magical experience. It is without a doubt the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. I think there are some things to consider and like you've highlighted, I think if you really think this is your only chance to have a child and you think you want more than one child, I think that's a, a really important reason to consider it because I think the bond that twins have is it's incomparable and I'm watching it grow every day but it is a really really difficult journey I have some friends who are solo mums of twins and I take my hats off to them because you need it takes a village to raise a child it takes a small country to raise twins and without my village we would have not survived that first year 
they joke about it and they say your first year with twins it's just a blur you don't remember about it I remember a lot of stuff it is seared in my brain it will never be removed because we did not have an easy first 12 months someone said to me if you're pregnant with twins take your expectations halve them lower them a bit more and then halve them again And then you might come close to being able to forgive yourself for your perceived shortcomings because you always have this idea of what it's going to be like to be a parent and how good you're going to be at it and how much you're going to love it. And it is, I'm sure it's as hard with a singleton, but oh my God, like the things that I thought I was going to be able to do if I had a singleton, unimaginably impossible with twins. For me to be able to get to mother's group on my own, and my, my babies were not good feeders. They were really difficult to feed. They ended up with feed refusal. They ended up on an elemental formula. We nearly needed to tube feed them because we couldn't get fluid into them. They were horrible sleepers, really unsettled, waking up. They used to wake up every 20 minutes, and so we used to have to do the nights in blocks so that my husband and I each would get about four hours sleep watching friends take their one baby into a cafe and if that baby needed a feed to feed it whether that was breast or bottle fed like that stuff's just it's unimaginable if you have twins so a lot of the things that you expect as a parent go away they're just not achievable if you have twins you often won't feel like you're doing a good job because it's so overwhelming and there's so much stuff and it's like a production line of, you know, feed, nappy change, have a go at trying to settle them. I used to take the boys out in their pram for two two two-hour walks a day because that was the only way that there would be a break from the crying. So it is a really different experience and I think if you go in with even vaguely reasonable expectations of the differences that it will be like, I think you'd be well ahead of the game. I was pretty scared. When I found out I was having twins, I didn't. I had no idea how I was going to manage. I think the other thing to be aware of is that the risks of postnatal depression and anxiety in multiple births is significantly higher. So I think the conservative rate is about 10%. So very high for postnatal blues, but 10% for formal postnatal depression with a singleton. And I think it's getting closer to 20%. I think it's 17% I've seen quoted um, in the literature for multiple births. So that's about one in five mums with twins will have postnatal depression and that's a really important thing to be aware of especially if you're going to experience things like premature birth separation after birth going home without a baby having to go home with only one baby the divorce rate for twins is significantly higher than the general population and I think up to 50 percent in couples with twins so you want to make sure that you've got a rock solid relationship before you put your relationship under that sort of strain and infertility can put an immense amount of strain on a relationship as well so if you add that in so I think they're things to be mindful of I don't think they're contraindications but I think that would be something that I would want a prospective mum thinking about a double embryo transfer to be able to digest I guess the last thing I would say is that you might be in a position where if you get splitting with your double embryo transfer, you have to think about are you going to want to consider having um, a fetal reduction? Um, and I do know a couple of people who've been in that position who for the safety of their babies because obviously a triplet or higher order multiple pregnancy is significantly higher risk for everyone involved. Do you feel capable of being able to make that decision? So... They're all really important considerations to have a think about when you're thinking about a double embryo transfer. 
Like I said, wouldn't change it for the world, but by God, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. What amazing insights. I think, you know, thank you so much for coming on Knocked Up. It's amazing to have you both as a doctor and as a mum of twins give that amazing personal perspective. Thank you so much for inviting me. I feel like there's one thing we didn't actually address, which is the risk to the twins when, um, in terms of multiple births. And with my paediatrician hat on, certainly risks in utero, so um, a higher risk of uneven growth, so selective intrauterine growth restriction, which can cause sort of long-term outcomes where we're starting to understand a little bit more in terms of um, metabolic outcomes for um, kids, so babies who are born with low birth rate, higher rates of things like cardiovascular disease and obesity, metabolic syndrome in adult life. The other really important risk, other than the, the neurodevelopmental risks of being born prematurely, just having a... Um, sharing a particularly sharing a placenta but even with a dark chorionic twins um, risk of things like cerebral palsy so gross motor development and intellectual development that's it is a known and well established and well documented risk um, so even babies who are born close to term or term there is that risk so like you were saying it's risky for the mums it is more risky for the babies and so from my point of view, I think it's really important that we weigh up all the risks and then we do our best to care for mum and babies. And it is pretty incredible to even be able to grow one human, but to be able to grow two humans, that's pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. Deb, we touched on, I'm sorry to jump backwards, but we touched on prematurity. And one of the major risks of having twins is that they may be born prematurely. And you've told us so insightfully the story of your babies and how they were born at 32 weeks. As a paediatrician, can you tell us about the obstacles faced for babies born prematurely at different gestational ages? It is a moving space. So we used to think, oh, if you're born at 36 weeks, you'll be fine, no dramas. And the data is starting to indicate that there is something really important in those last two weeks up to 38 weeks and even up to 39 weeks in terms of neurodevelopment and particularly about executive functioning for brains. And so we're now delaying, or sorry, we are obstetricians and now delaying elective caesareans to 39 weeks. We're, we're listening to you. We're listening to the paediatricians. Whereas it used to be um, done with less concern earlier. I so I actually look after a set of triplets um, who are now teenagers and at least two of the three have ADHD. So there is something to do with that ability to sustain focus and executive function and impulse control that there, there appears to be a benefit the longer you can stay in utero as long as it's safe to. And it's always very hard to know once you take a baby out, would it have been safe to leave them in? It's easy for us to say with my babies because they were very clearly unhappy when they were born due to intrauterine factors that we hadn't yet fully declared themselves. So, I mean, we got lucky because we were so closely monitored. So I'm incredibly grateful. But my boys are at risk of learning difficulties, um, attention deficit problems, executive functioning problems because they were born prematurely. And so all of those things are 
things that as a paediatrician I monitor for. From a, an earlier point of view, particularly with the extremely preterm babies, so babies that are born at less than 1,500 grams and certainly born less than one kilo, there are significant increased risks in terms of things like cerebral palsy, learning difficulties, ADHD, gross motor skill delays, language delays, things like autism, and also I would add feeding difficulties. So I think immature gut is a really important element of the the first 12 months post-delivery. And my boys at nearly four are still allergic to cow's milk protein, and that's not uncommon with premies with quite severe reflux and things like that. Having an unsettled baby or a baby that doesn't sleep well is more common in babies who are preterm. So... There are so many elements of development that can be affected by being born preterm and we are incredibly lucky because at this stage there were there were some concerns at some point that potentially one of my boys would have um, some physical complications from having twin to twin transfusion or being born and he has a being prematurely and he has slight so there's there's a tone difference between the two babies so one has a very beautiful posture and one is has a little bit of a a a lower tone type body but it's probably more noticeable because you've got someone to directly compare them to but yes it was raised as a possible concern when they were about 13 months corrected and just started walking and it's always been in the back of my mind that they are at risk for any number of problems because of their premature birth as well as the birth complications relating to being a, twi- a twin pregnancy that shared a placenta. And Deb, in terms of babies that are born younger than your boys were, what's the chance of a baby surviving at very early gestation these days with modern medicine if they have to be born very early? For example, what would be the chance at, say, 25 weeks? 25 to 26 weeks, it's changed even in the last 10 years since I started training because I feel like when I was a medical student, they were still offering the option of not resuscitating a 26-week baby and that's unheard of now. Now they're offering resuscitation to 23-week babies. The rate of survival is high. I feel like a 25, 26-weeker off the top of my head, their survival rate would be close to 80%. But the question is, is what is, is what is their survival rate without significant disability? And so there's some of the discussions that come in when a neonatologist will come and talk to you if you're at risk of having an extremely preterm delivery is talking about the risk of neurodevelopmental outcomes. I feel like there's a lot of luck involved. Like sometimes it's just unpredictable what's going to happen. But... At 26 weeks, it's not a discussion, and most of those babies actually do really well. The neonatal care has improved significantly now that we understand a bit more about premature lung disease and how to minimise it. So, again, when I was a NICU trainee, which was only like, gosh, that was 2009, so that was 10 years ago, we were just starting to change the way that we ventilated babies to decrease the the risk of trauma to the lungs and now you're pretty unlucky if you get intubated most babies will get intubated to put some surfactant in to help the lungs mature and then they'll put them on CPAP for as long as possible so again like the methods of care have grown incredibly and so the the long-term outcomes in particularly in terms of lungs and brains um, and again with the institution of magnesium sulfate and steroids has all improved outcomes significantly but 
there are no guarantees and it's really hard to predict which babies will do well and which babies will do less well. So it's it's luck. A lot of it is just luck. Thank you so much, Deb. That is fascinating and also a little bit terrifying. I think I've always said to Raylia that when I come to have having mine to put two back in, not so sure now. <laughs> um, <laughs> might keep them in the freezer a bit longer. So thank you so much. If people want to find you, they need a paediatrician. How do they find you? You're, you're everywhere. I am a bit everywhere and I'm probably not as convenient. I do hope one day to have um, a more local private practice that's a bit more accessible. My main private practice is through a community health centre called IPC Health, which is way out west in uh, Wyndham Vale at the moment. I also do the Complex Developmental Assessment Clinic out at Eastern Health, but unfortunately for me, that's not ongoing care. It's just assessment and diagnosis. And I'm not a big social media person, so I don't have a social media handle. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.